0: I'm Dan kurtz and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview.
1: Putin is playing a very, very dangerous political game. He's going to have to pretend not to lose a war that he's losing.
0: When Vladimir Putin launched his war in Ukraine one year ago, he thought his military would quickly take Kiev and the Ukrainian government would swiftly fall almost every day since has brought another reminder of how wrong Putin was and how much the world underestimated the strength of Ukrainian resistance. But as we head into the war's second year, some big questions loom. Last week, I spoke with Liana Fix, Michael Kimmage, and Dara Massacott for a special foreign affairs event marking the one-year anniversary of the invasion. We discussed where the war will go from here and how it might end. This is, of course, uh, an extremely grim occasion, a grim anniversary, but we really cannot ask for a better lineup of foreign affairs authors to make sense of what's transpired over the past year, and also, perhaps more importantly, to help us understand what's coming next. First, we have Dara Massacott. She has a piece in the new issue called What Russia Got Wrong. And there's really no better explanation of what has happened on the battlefield in the last year. Uh, But she also steps back in that piece and considers what might happen next. She is a specialist in the Russian military at the Rand Corporation, and before that was at the US Department of Defense. We then have Liana Fix and Michael Kimmage, who I'm introducing as a pair because they have written uh, a really wonderful series of pieces as a pair over the past year. Liana is now a fellow here at the Council on Foreign Relations, and Michael is a professor of Russian history at Catholic University, and also previously served on the Secretary of State's policy planning staff working on Russia and Ukraine. I'm gonna start by looking back, uh, having each of you very quickly, and let's say a minute or less, tell us what has most surprised you since the start of this war, and what was it that you missed that you didn't, or perhaps couldn't see a year ago that accounts for that surprise? Dara, let me start with you on this.
2: I think one of the things that surprised me the most was that Russia would make such a big bet with all of its professional forces and yet have so many faulty assumptions that went into the plan. Um, You know, the one thing that I, I didn't know then, but we know now, is how Western support would pivot for Ukraine after the war started. We had a program, we had a plan for supporting them before the war, but at the time it was mostly focused on Um, smaller arms like javelins and stingers and and officials at the time were speaking off the record talking about supporting an insurgency essentially after the government or the military fell apart and when that didn't happen within a few days our our whole plan changed comprehensively and, and just look at how far the support has come I don't think the Russians were anticipating that and they don't have an answer for it or at least one that
3: they're not willing to do.
0: Liana, let me go to you next on that same question.
3: I think I'm going into a similar direction as as Dawa is, but what surprised me in particular is how Putin has not only miscalculated his own army and the Ukrainian army, but has also miscalculated the response from Europe. And that I find surprising because he always considered himself someone who knows Europe, who knows Germany well, a president very much like like Biden is an Atlanticist president, a president who is rooted in this Cold War history in Europe. From his perspective, it seemed to be a golden opportunity. Angela Merkel was leaving the stage. Um, Emmanuel Macron had elections. Russia was washing to increase Europe's dependence on Russian energy, trying to conclude the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, trying to empty European gas storages. So the idea was that, that Europe would be in Russia's pocket and there would be not much resistance against this war. And it turned out to be completely differently and perhaps to... Putin's credit, if there's anyone, anything that anyone wants to give Putin credit for, actually Europeans themselves might have underestimated their own possibility to raise resilience in um, the weeks and months after the war. You could all often hear European officials being surprised themselves at the response that they've been able to mount in in reaction to the war, so that adds to the miscalculation that Putin has made with his own army, with Ukraine's army, the miscalculation that Europe would be in his pocket and would not mount a significant resistance.
1: Michael, how about you? For me, it's the scale and the magnitude of the event itself. 2014, 2015, annexation of Crimea, the war in the Donbass was a very significant event, and I think it did have ripple effects all across uh europe but this event has had ripple effects all across uh, the world i'm tuning into this conversation from the country of colombia where the food prices have gone through the roof and inflation is much much higher uh, directly as a result uh, of the war and that's only one of you know many many countries that have felt the effects of this war far far away from ukraine so it's just astonishing to me that uh, in terms of food security Uh, In terms of energy, in terms of inflation, and obviously the security issues that are connected to the war, it's just much more momentous than anything I could have imagined. In terms of what I got wrong, and I think it's, you know, an explanation for the magnitude of this event in part, is the radicalism of Putin. He had seemed to me like a man who was in power for 22 years before the war, obviously capable of brutality, capable of aggression. That's not a surprise. But he had always built in certain limits, or at least I thought he had before this. Uh, and in this case, he's just you know turned over the apple cart in the biggest possible way and undertaken for himself enormous risks for his country and for his own regime. And that was not the Vladimir Putin I understood before the war, but it's the one who's emerged from the war. Uh, and that's been a great surprise for me.
0: Darrell, let me stick with you for the moment on... Russian military and what has what has surprised us here you know you've studied Russia and its military as deeply as anyone for for many years I'm sure you've seen you know lots of classified assessments uh in your your time at the Department of Defense you note in your new piece in a really striking and powerful way that you know had Russia followed the military doctrine that it is articulated that it is you know supposedly adopted in recent years the war would have gone very differently but it it in fact didn't it diverged from that in key ways what what accounts for uh, for that divergence of the failures that that no one really expected?
2: Well, I, I should probably clarify that even if they had followed their strategy a little bit better and they had planned for this in, in a way that was appropriate, it, it doesn't necessarily mean the performance would have been 180 degrees different. But there were a few key departures that really, really hurt them in the early days and weeks of the war that they've never really been able to recover from. So I think for me, what I was anticipating at war start was that they would lead off with days or weeks of air and missile strikes before they even committed the army. That's how they talk about it. That's how they think about a war like this. That didn't happen. They committed both in at the same time. And immediately the Russian army got into trouble. The Air Force was then taken off of its mission set, which at the time was doing deep strikes, trying to hit fixed targets, trying to find and suppress Ukrainian SAMs. They were taken off that mission and they were there to defend the army and doing close air support is not something as a force that it, it, they're, they weren't really equipped to do. So we saw that very early on. And I, I remember texting, you know, colleagues who also follow the Russian military, like, what are they doing? You know, what, what's happening here? And really, they could never suppress Ukrainian SAMs after that. And there are a few reasons for that. SAMs
0: are surface air missiles just for... Oh, yes, for, I'm sorry. Those Yes, yes
2: uh, surface air missiles. And as a result, Russia could never have dominance of the skies. And that should have been one of their advantages in this war, and they were never able to achieve it
0: and sticking with the state of the the battlefield at this point, do you see evidence that Russia has learned? What are the prospects of that counteroffensive, given what we've seen so far?
2: well, um, i'm I'm still struggling to find the right metaphor for what I'm seeing. I mean, the Russian army is very it's almost like unrecognizable from the way it was a year ago. There's just been so many losses not only of equipment um but from trained specialists as well. So I I made a recent analogy and I I don't know if it's the right one, but I talk about, you know, an engine in a car where its transmission has been blown and you can press on the gas pedal all you want, but it's never going to shift into a higher gear. And I think we're seeing that right now with Russia's offensive. You have hastily trained personnel, you have older equipment being pulled from Siberia. It's not as effective. Um, And they're trying to push this forward in Donetsk and Luhansk before they were really ready to do it. And so I, I just think we're seeing a set of compounding mistakes here, but we're also seeing something that I think Ukrainians are worried about. And that's the intent is, is unchanged. You know, they are willing to throw human waves at this problem and until they get the results that they want. And I think you know the capacity is the issue that's the problem. I think right now, even with the mobilized forces, another large push, you know, perhaps to take Kharkiv is out of the question really. Um, I think Kyiv, another run at Kyiv is totally out of the question for years, um, but it's still dangerous as an organization. The intent is there, but the capacity is diminished.
0: Michael, let me go to you to talk a bit about how you see Putin's calculations at this point. You know, you noted how surprised you were by his conduct over the the last, last year, year and a half. Do you have a sense that he has changed his goals, has, has moderated his goals in any way? How does he um see the state of the war given how badly it's gone from his perspective.
1: Well I think the foundation for Putin is that the domestic situation is under control and will be under control for the foreseeable future. So the one thing that he has navigated from his vantage point capably since the start of the war is that he's kept Russians on board. Whether Russians feel emotionally committed to this war I really don't know but uh, he's able to bring the country I think after maybe one or two months of shock at the beginning of the war he's brought the country to the extent necessary behind the war. So in that sense, and it sort of echoes Dara's point about the intent, sort of like the political capacity, as far as we can see, is there. But I think when it comes to the military side of things, it strikes me that he's simply improvising. Uh, Obviously, I think he has these dreams and fantasies of what he can accomplish, and who knows what kind of information he's getting about the the battle space. But, you know, it's uh, often with political timetables, or it seems to me as if it's with political timetables in mind. And I think, you know, Derek could say better than I could in terms of Bakhmut, but it just feels like it was a political effort calculated to to occur at the time of the one-year anniversary. Uh, And you could sort of see Putin's stamp on that, but the military logic is much harder to discern. So that improvisation, I think it is to a degree typical of Putin, but it looks like it's an aspect really of the larger incompetence of the whole war effort.
0: Michael, let let me just stick with you on Putin for a moment. I mean, you noted that this is not the putin you thought you thought you knew you know that you you've studied him very very deeply for for a long time what is you give us the picture of putin that we have now and how is that different from you know what you thought of a few years ago or when you were in the us government you know watching him attempt to take over swaths of ukraine last time around
1: well it's it's really two things that had stood out to me before and they may not be entirely Uh, irrelevant now, but they're less relevant than I thought they were. And the first is a sort of sense of limits, that uh, in 2014, he did annex Crimea, but when the politics didn't go his way in Kharkiv and Odessa, although he hoped that it would, he didn't mount an offensive there. It was a more limited offensive in the Donbass. Likewise with Syria, you know, he could have gone further, but he committed a sort of a limited number of resources and got a certain return on his investment. And the second aspect of the sort of pre-war Putin that had always struck me, and I think this was a cliche about Putin before the war, is that he was a classically cynical Russian political figure. Uh, And so he kind of lies and dissembles. He was interested in his own power, his wealth, you know, and the kind of circular reasoning of of this argument. He was interested in perpetuating his regime. You know, again, I don't think that that's irrelevant, but I think he's a much more ideological man than I was able to see before. There is a kind of Eurasianist element to his thinking. There is uh, a desire really to revive empire, whether uh, of the pre-revolutionary or of the Soviet vintage. And the risks, the sort of extreme risks that he's undertaking on the basis of these rather fantastic ideological programs Either that was in his heart and not expressed for 20 years, or it's a function of his getting older, or if it's a a function of the pandemic, you can kind of fill in the blank there. As I understand it, sort of final point I would make here is that we have this paradigm of radicalization that we use or we used after September 11th for figures who got into terrorist movements. Uh, I think that that's Putin's story in a sense. He's been radicalized, maybe by his own ideas and then by like-minded people uh, around him, but it's enormously consequential. That is a a powerful and uh, disquieting analogy,
0: Liana, Let me let me get you to turn the focus a bit to the policy response from the U.S. and Europe and others who have who have backed Ukraine. I think there's been kind of consistently this desire to to balance two competing imperatives, and I think that the, you, you and Michael noted in an earlier piece that these two imperatives uh, are often in tension, and one of those is avoiding escalation. You know, especially nuclear escalation and avoiding uh, some outcome that would mean, you know, a, a true Russia NATO war. And on the other hand, giving Ukraine what it needs supporting in, in its in its efforts to fight off the Russian offensive and take back as much of its territory as possible. Do you see that balance is right? Or do you, you know there have been many critics who have argued that uh, the the US and Germany and others have been too too afraid of escalation or too willing to cede initiative to Putin out of fear that he might escalate?
3: Yeah, that's a good question to answer in hindsight, because then you know what has happened or not happened. But I think the the idea that now is often discussed in how the support for Ukraine was you know, sliced in pieces, mostly reactive to the battlefield. The explanation now in hindsight is a little bit that this is a strategy of um, escalation management. So the idea was to cook the frog uh, slowly so it doesn't jump out and I'm not entirely sure whether this is really the full truth. I mean, it was also um, public constituencies in Europe, but also in the United States, which obviously made it difficult to immediately send tanks to Ukraine after, after the outbreak of the war. Um, but that explains sort of the slow, um, the slow increase in support. And what we see right now, and I thought that was surprising, is since the beginning of the year, we see a new push both from the United States and from Europeans to really give Ukraine one big chance in this year to conduct another successful counteroffensive. And at the end of last year, there was a lot of pessimism that support would slowly go down. That's not what we've seen. We have those tanks um, in Ukraine. The first Polish tanks actually just arrived today in Ukraine. But the question really is, what if Putin does not negotiate, does not escalate, remains in power, but just continues fighting and does not concede defeat? Um, Even if Ukraine is successful uh, in a counteroffensive, he might just continue fighting on a smaller scale and negate Ukraine the victory that that it wants to see. But it would be quite concerning because it would mean that Putin is driven by history much more than by any military um, or security concerns. And in contrast to Boris Yeltsin who had this deal with Putin that um, he he will not be touched, um, that he will not be prosecuted in any way. Putin has no one to make this deal with. So it really is the question how closely in his perception, also since he's been occupied with the fate of Gaddafi a lot, how close in his perception victory or defeat in Ukraine is linked to his own survival. And that might mean that he just cannot negotiate, but just continues a fight which will be more difficult for Western publics to sustain in year two, three, four, five.
0: So a a long war at a certain level might be the best possible outcome for Putin at this point.
3: It might be. And it might be on a, a, if it is on a smaller scale and Dara can estimate that in a better way, it might become more manageable for the West if they continue supply to Ukraine, if Ukraine even achieves to break up Russian forces into the East and into the South again, but it still means that this war will continue on a small scale and will need continuous awareness in the West. And we do have elections in the U.S. next year. We do have elections in Germany 2025. So if Putin thinks in categories of five years, we have a lot of domestic events taking place in the West in the next five years.
0: We'll be back after a short break.
2: The Foreign Affairs Interview is brought to you by Foreign Affairs Magazine. The magazine provides thoughtful takes on global events straight from the world's leading experts. You can get unlimited access, including daily articles online, six issues a year, and a century of archives for only $39.95. Subscribe today at foreignaffairs.com slash subscribe.
0: Darrell, let me go to you to talk a bit about the prospects of a of another Ukrainian offensive and what what might be achievable. You know, I think the conventional view at this point for those of us who are not military experts is that, you know, this Russian offensive will um, you know, maybe make a bit more progress in eastern Ukraine, but eventually kind of fizzle out for reasons you laid out. And then Ukraine will be back on the, the offensive again. You know, if you talk to Ukrainians, they say they will go all the way to Crimea and take back all of the territory, even territory that Russia's held since 2014. But but what do you think is actually possible uh, in, in a Ukrainian offensive this year? And do you see Crimea as plausibly part of that? I mean, is that a, a, a feasible objective for them?
2: Well, I think the Russians are the weakest when they're on the offensive, which they're doing right now. So there's a lot of factors that are still in play with that. We'll have to see what they're left with at the end of it. But what I'm not seeing is Russia aggregating strike power anywhere. I don't see multiple battalions that they're holding in Russia that are going to come in and and punch through Ukrainian lines. I don't see that. So unless there's some other information out there, I think the offensive that we see right now is about all they can do with the folks that they've mobilized so far. Um, That being said, I do think Russia is going to have to do another round of mobilization next year, and I'm not sure which form that will take. It could be the more politically safe version, which is just to do a continuous call-up to replace casualties in small numbers to try to keep things level at home. That doesn't buy them a lot of additional strike power. Option B would be doing another really large mobilization round like we've seen. They can't keep these people in the field indefinitely, either through um, casualties, sickness, you know, PTSD, these kind of things. They will have to mobilize again. It's just how are they going to do it? In terms of Ukrainian counteroffensives, if you look at what the Russians are doing on the ground, I can see where they are very concerned. They are putting a lot of effort right now in the Zaporizhia oblast or region, trying to build multiple defensive positions, minefields, trenches, things like that. I think they do feel a little vulnerable down there. If there was an attempt by the Ukrainians to cut them off and try to bifurcate that land corridor to Crimea, I think that's what the Russians are maybe anticipating and worried about. In terms of getting to Crimea, um, this, is a, this is a topic that, that comes up a lot. It is very challenging for the Ukrainians to get to it. There's a lot of natural barriers in the way right now if they were going to try to come down um, through Kherson and, and get to Crimea on the ground. And and the naval issue is an entirely different can of worms. So while it makes sense for them to take it, I think militarily it is one of the more challenging operations to undertake right now. And the Ukrainians also leave themselves vulnerable in a counteroffensive as well. I mean, this is just vulnerable for both sides if something goes wrong.
0: So from a Ukrainian perspective, to your mind, a kind of optimistic scenario for the next six months or so would be for them to. To to cut the land corridor between Donbass and Crimea, but likely not get much farther than that.
2: I mean, that, that's that's certainly one outcome, and I know that they're you know there's rumors that they're um, you know, in talks with you know, Western partners to think about the best way forward, and they're doing a lot of incredible work um, on their own. I think they have a really excellent understanding of Russian forces and how they fight. Um, A lot of that played into their success last year in the Kharkiv Offensive. They did a two-pronged attack, and they really uh, attacked the Russians where they were very weak. And the whole front line collapsed in on itself due to morale problems and understrength units. And a a note of caution, a lot of the ingredients that led to that success at that time, you know, the thin units, depleted units really spread out. Um, Those ingredients are not necessarily there anymore on the Russian side. They filled in a lot of those gaps. Um, not with well-trained soldiers. They're mobilized, uh, but it does, it does add up.
0: Michael, l- l- let me go to you for one other um solution or or kind of objective that you hear sometimes from the Ukrainians or supporters of Ukraine in the in the US and Europe. And that's the prospect that Putin will fall as a result of his his failures in Ukraine. Um, you know, what is your sense of how vulnerable he is? You know, on the one hand, you note that he has a a real lock on on his country, and that there's not a you know a lot of opposition within the borders of Russia that could viably unseat him. On the other hand, uh, you and Liana wrote in a piece uh, earlier this year that autocratic leaders cannot lose wars and remain autocrats, and there seems little prospect of Putin winning at least. So, what exactly do you see? What are the prospects for him politically? And is it you know merely wishful thinking to imagine that he might uh, somehow fall as a result of this, or is there some prospect of
1: that? Well, certainly the infrastructure of repression and the infrastructure of state power uh, is quite strong. And in that sense, it's, you know, for any kind of opposition movement or figure in the Kremlin who wishes to unseat Putin, it's, 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 a, it's a steep climb. And, you know, I think that has to be acknowledged from the outset. But to focus, I think, on the real vulnerabilities, which are there and are going to gather strength, I think it goes back to what Liana was saying a moment ago. So, Putin is going to try not to lose this war. That's his objective at this point. He's going to improvise. He's going to do what he can. He's got a media apparatus that can spin things in Russia to make it look like whatever narrative he wants to make it look like. But it's an increasingly difficult venture. I think it's important to go back to the very beginning of the war uh, in this regard. The kinds of arguments that Putin put forward... Uh, were very weak, uh, you know. Denazification of Ukraine, demilitarization of Ukraine, w- refusing to call it a war, even at the beginning, special technical operation, uh, etc. It is, I think, very, very significant that on the twenty-third of February, uh, twenty twenty-two, if you could have pulled Russians, I'm guessing here, but if you could have pulled them, ninety percent, ninety-five percent would have said that they don't want the war. And wars don't get more popular uh over time they get more unpopular over time even for countries that are that are winning wars and so i think that putin is playing a very very dangerous political game he's gonna have to pretend not to lose a war that he's losing so i don't anticipate massive street protests or a kind of revolution coming to russia that's sort of hard to envision but the incentives now for people who are elsewhere in the power structure to provide a challenge and the sort of militia groups that are popping up across Russia, you know, under Prigozhin's control or, or Kadira for others, uh, is also, I think, a kind of warning sign. So um, it's always a fascinating question in politics how long a lie will last. They can last a long time, uh, but they can also uh, crack up very uh, rapidly. And that's, I think, the, the crux of the dilemma for Putin that his whole political venture now. Is based not on achievements and not on the country's future prospects, which are quite bleak. But it's based on his ability to lie about the war, uh, and uh, I, I don't think he'll be able to do it indefinitely.
0: Liana, you noted some skepticism about uh, about negotiations and negotiations as a kind of way of ending this war. Um, yet you do hear from policymakers and and Europe and in, in some in the U.S. that you know they do expect that this will, this war will have a diplomatic ending, right? that's where they see. Do you see that you know first of all as a threat to the the unity of 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 western supporters of the coalition and potential fissure coming and second is there some uh, less ambitious kind of negotiation that may at least freeze the conflict that people kind of invoke the the Korean War as a example of a, a war that has never truly ended but at least has been you know frozen for decades now is there some other picture of negotiations that might be might be
3: viable here yeah, I think I think of the question of the end game in Ukraine because that's what it's basically about. It's fascinating that sort of on February twenty four, two thousand twenty two, we really had the entire Western alliance on the same page. So it was the moment when the Germans called the polls and said, "Oh, you were you were right. We were wrong." It was really sort of this this moment of realization, we are on the same page, this is what is happening. But since then, under the mantle of unity, we have seen that countries fall back into tendencies of thinking that they had before. It doesn't mean that they fall back to their positions that they had before, in Germany's case, a position of dialogue with Russia, But they fall back into into their old ways of thinking to some extent. And for Western Europeans, that's very much a thinking which sees and which places the escalation risks on a higher level than the Central and Eastern Europeans. So from instance, from the perspective of France and Germany, escalation would be highest if Ukraine would try to get Russia out of its entire territory, including Crimea. From the Polish perspective, the escalation with, would be highest if Russia does not lose decisively, including Crimea. And that leads to a NATO-Russia escalation because Russia feels emboldened to go further. And these differences are not as present right now, because there is basically no explicit agreement, um, so the line is Ukraine decides how far it wants to go and also wh- how long, you know, uh, whatever it takes and how long it takes. But these, these agreements are, are certainly there and they are and they are present also when it comes to the question of fighter jets and so on. So I think it will become a problem once we get to that point. But so far, it's relatively comfortable for everyone to say, well, let's first get militarily to a point where Crimea can be put under pressure at all. And then um, we discuss the the next point and i think on negotiations um the 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 great the hope or sort of the ideal negotiation would obviously be sort of a big negotiation which would would include a new outline for european security and you know ideally some new arms control measures where troops can be stationed on ukraine side and on Russia's side and i don't don't see this this big new European security architecture emerging. I think the architecture was very much destroyed and what we have is an order which is upheld by military capabilities first and foremost. So even the discussion about security guarantees for Ukraine and the defense pact for Ukraine will only become real if it is um, undergirded by military capabilities. It doesn't help to have something on paper which says, oh, it's a little bit less than Article 5, but more than Budapest. That, that's not what will, what will make the difference. So what we might probably hope for at some point is a, a, a ceasefire, an armistice in any way, perhaps more local than on the entire front line. But I find it hard to imagine, and even after China's proposal, or position paper that they have put forward, um yesterday or today um there doesn't seem to be any creative thinking which is not uh, sort of uh, uh, strongly on Russia's side how how to end this how to end this war actually in comparison to to the Chinese position paper Minsk II Minsk was quite an elaborate and, and detailed uh, peace proposal um so there really is a lack of um imagination how Russia can be brought to the table for a broader kind kind of agreement.
0: That's, I'd, I'd like each of you in, let's say, 30 or 45 seconds to answer the question of what you think the biggest source of uncertainty is. You know What variable will determine what happens from here that um, we don't have a clear view on right now, whether that's on the battlefield or in political support or anything else? Michael, let me start with you on this one.
1: Sure. It goes back to your previous question. I think the biggest variable that I think will will determine the effect of the the shape of the war is uh is the sentiments of the Russian people because I don't think that Ukraine is going to lose its will to fight and you know there are cracks in the edifice of of transatlantic support for Ukraine but I don't think that they're going to widen that much so I think this side of the equation is going to remain firmly in place and I would just say that the Russian people to me are uh, a mystery uh and you can come up with polling data that suggests high levels of support for the war Uh, But I don't fully trust that. uh, And I I just wonder and if there were to be some shift on the popular level, the war would start to look very, very different. So that to me makes it the variable that above all others could really change the logic and, and dynamic of the war. Liana, how about you?
3: For me, it's actually U.S.-China relations because I have the impression that where U.S.-China relations are headed will also decide where China is heading with its support for for Russia. And we see this with this big concern in the United States about China providing lethal, lethal assistance to Russia. So if China comes to the conclusion that it cannot afford at all to let Russia lose this war and also that it is a useful leverage towards the United States to play and that they are not compartmentalizing their relationship with the U.S., with with the war, um, then this could sort of become mixed up into into a broader uh, Chinese strategy of, of pressuring the West also by supporting Russia more explicitly than, than has been the case before.
0: And Dara?
2: I'm worried about issues of sustainment, and I think that impacts the Ukrainians the most. We do not have an indefinite supply of Soviet-era air defense missile interceptors. There's only so many places abroad that we can go to try to get more of those for the Ukrainians. We are supplying them with Western uh, surface-to-air missiles like Iris-T and NASAMs. But again, those are not indefinite either. Um, uh, Artillery shells is a problem, too. So I worry about the sustainment issue. Um, But I I agree with uh, my panelists that the Ukrainian will to fight remains as strong as it ever was. On the Russian side, I, I do worry there's a few shoes that could drop. I am concerned that the Russian Air Force is still a force in being. They've lost some squadrons, but all in all, it's 8% or less of the Air Force that's gone. They've been very conservative with how they've used it because they can't get through the air defenses. If that was to change, um, if Russia was able to attrit those SAMs down and they were able to bring their air power back in in a meaningful way, that'd be very damaging and would change dynamics. And I, I share Liana's concern as well with The possibility of of Chinese lethal aid to Russia changing the equation a little bit in key ways. They still can't create more trained soldiers, though, for the Russians. So there's there's limits there in terms of proficiency.
0: Thank you to all three of you for the wonderful pieces you've done for foreign affairs over the last year. We'll look forward to having you. um, Back in our pages or on our website uh, soon. And let me recommend everyone as well, a series of pieces we've done uh, around the one-year anniversary of the war about what we've learned. And if you go to foreignaffairs.com, you can see contributions from Fiona Hill and Lawrence Friedman and Angela Stent and Josh Offa and others. So there's a lot more that we'll uh, add to what we discussed today. Thanks to all three of you. Thanks for everyone for joining. And we'll look forward to being back uh, on another topic soon. Thank you for listening. You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. The Foreign Affairs Interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming-Dresser and Molly McEnany. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, Gabrielle Sierra and Marcus Zacharia. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks again for tuning in.